Now, before we get to the text, I want to set this message in the context of this church. And I want to begin with a really huge statement. And that statement is that the plan of the Bible is for the entire earth to experience human flourishing. God created the heavens and the earth so that the men and women he created in his image could flourish in that place. That they could live life to its, its fullest. If you're a local church, that's your calling is to contribute to human flourishing in the world. We are not Christians because of what we're against. We are Christians because of what we're for. And we are for human flourishing. This means a commitment to the flourishing of all Christians. Now, starting with the Christians in this church, you should be committed to the human flourishing of one another in every sphere of life. But that doesn't just apply to the church. It it applies to everyone in this locality, this geographic location who calls on the name of the Lord. So we should be committed to all Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches to flourish in this community. And that should be our heart. But we've got to go beyond that because the Bible goes beyond that. We must be committed to the flourishing of all people in our locality. And we know that human flourishing begins with being reconciled to God. You cannot flourish. You can have all the goodies on earth. You can have peace in your life in terms of a lack of conflict, but without being made right with God through Jesus, you will not flourish. So I use the terms human flourishing, committed to human flourishing, and the, the biblical word for this is we're supposed to love. Jesus said that we were to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus said our neighbor is anyone who in, connects in with our life. We are to love one another. We are to love one another. Now, when you start out in the Christian life, especially if you start out young, this all seems very possible very quickly. And as you go through life, you experience disappointments. You experience disappointments with yourself, with others. And this has a tendency for our faith to grow weaker, our vision to grow smaller. And as a result, our prayers grow weaker and smaller. And our disappointments begin to define what we expect of life and what we expect of God. But the Bible calls us to something global, huge, that Jesus Christ is going to transform the entire earth. And we connect in with that. Well, none of this happens, and this is the topic of today, none of this happens apart from prayer. God has chosen to work in the world through his people, praying and asking him to fulfill the very things he has promised. 
The tendency in America, when things are hard or tough, we go one of two directions. We either move on to greener pastures, or we try harder. I'm all for effort, but as Americans, we always look for the practical solution. There are no practical solutions unless the Lord builds the house. Our labors are in vain. Try as hard as you want. You have the best people involved in the perfect positions. It doesn't work. In the Bible, the response to disappointment is to pray. And I thought it would be wonderful that this be the second message this church hears is a call to pray. Nothing apart from prayer. Nothing. Nothing of value. Nothing that contributes to human flourishing apart from prayer. And what I want you to see today from the first two chapters of 1 Samuel is that your prayers for your small local situation should lead, God intends that they lead you out of yourself to see God transforming the entire world. And you begin to see, I connect in with that. There's no little people in this world. There are no little Christians. God intends for us to participate in the ends of the ages. And he has that for you. And he loves to work through small, weak people. One of the reasons I'm glad to live in Prince George's County, Maryland, is I connect in with numerous people who are poor, who are weak, who are the discards of our society. And I see them connecting with God with hope. And I think, okay, yeah, this really does work. It doesn't depend on the money. It doesn't depend on your family having it all together. And it doesn't depend on your church having it all together. Uh, Kurt Allen, as you all know, my associate, has a little motto for our church, which, uh, well, he makes these things up. I just go along with them. But his, <laughs> his motto is, we're not impressive. We're not impressive. And he tells people that. And then he says, and we're not impressed. And people always walk away going, what did that second half mean? And then, you know, as they leave, they realize, oh, he means with me. Uh, and that's true. We're not, we're not, we're not impressive and we're not impressed. So today we're going to look at a woman's prayer that grew out of anguished disappointment and led to global impact that she never even knew about. So let's read about Hannah and Hannah's plight. First Samuel chapter one, we're going to start reading the first eight verses. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. 
On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? This Elkanah was a good man. He was a man of some wealth. He was able to take his entire family to Jerusalem every year for the feast where they sacrificed an animal that would have been costly. This was a thank offering. This man was not driven by riches in his life. He was a faithful man. He was faithful to the Lord. He married a righteous woman named Hannah. He loved Hannah. I'm sure when they got married, they planned many children and they had a picture of what life was going to look like. But things didn't work out as expected. Hannah was what we today would call infertile. She could not get pregnant. Now, in our day, infertility is painful if you want children and you cannot have children. That's a very painful thing. But in her day... It forebode potential destitution. In our day, our future is tied up in our ability to work and put away money for a comfortable retirement. Either when we turn 65, maybe we can no longer work. In our day, our legacy is what people remember about us. But in Elkanah's day, in Hannah's day, your future, your identity was tied to your children. Your children were the ones who would provide for you in old age. Your children carried your name into the future. Your future and your legacy was tied to your children. Having kids was everything. Old Testament law had ways for dealing with childlessness through the extended family. But the pressure was there. And one culturally acceptable way to get children, if your wife couldn't get pregnant, was simply to marry another wife while keeping the first one. And so Elkanah did this. What was interesting is, He didn't shove Hannah off to the side. He continued to love her, do the right thing by her, care for her. And then he married Penina, and Penina proved to be more than up to the baby-making tasks. She produced babies prodigiously and would mock Hannah because of it. So every year they travel to Shiloh where the priest kept the tabernacle and they make this offering, the fellowship offering. You put the offering on the altar and then a portion of it comes off and God gives it back to you to have a feast of thanksgiving and fellowship with him. And so he would do this. It was their annual Thanksgiving dinner as they're all sitting around the table. And there Hannah sits and Penina is abusing her. For her lack of children, she sits there weeping. It is interesting that Hannah never once criticizes Penina. 
She's weeping over her lack of children. What she does is she understands that Penina isn't the problem. So she takes her pain and she moves it in another direction. So the second part of this sermon is Hannah's prayer. We find out about Hannah's prayer in verse 9. If you'll read with me. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. So they finished the meal. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting at the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. In other words, there'll be a sign he grows hair in that he was devoted to the Lord. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Interesting family rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. Hannah had the option as all of us do in the kinds of situation that she found herself, she had the option of taking matters into her own hands. She could either do that or she could pray. You know, the story of Sarah, the other famous infertile woman in the Bible, (coughs) she and her husband cannot get pregnant, Abraham. So she (laughs) takes her live-in maid and says, look, have babies by her and they'll be yours. If you know the story, you know it worked out to be an absolute disaster. It wasn't what God wanted or promised. And, and, and this is our tendency. As your situation in life gets more and more desperate, there is a tendency increasingly to take desperate measures to fix the problem. So, The guy who is just an honest businessman, who keeps his word, who always does what he says he will do. He runs out of legal options for keeping the company afloat. And so he moves to illegal options and lies on loan applications to get more cash to run the business. I remember caring for a couple one time many years ago. Their son had brain cancer. 
and it was it was horrific. It was really horrible. But what broke my heart about this man is that rather than turning to prayer, he would just search the internet endlessly looking for that that new experimental cure for his son. We, we, we think if we can just take matters into our own hands. We read the books. We watch the movies of those who are really good at taking matters in their own hands. We think that's the American way. It is the American way. It's not the Bible's way. Hannah could have made Penina the source of her anguish. Hannah could have tried to get rid of her. She could have tried all kinds of things. Instead of blaming Panina, instead of trying some other method of making a baby, she turned to God. So she leaves the feast at the point of her greatest anguish. And then she goes to meet with God at the tabernacle. And there she prays. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So you see this woman, her face is red, her eyes are swollen, there's snot. You're with someone who's sobbing, it's not pretty. But she is praying. See, a lot of us, we view prayer as a prissy activity. You know, you got, you got to clean up, put the right clothes on. You got to dress your prayer up, make it all pretty, make it sound good. You know, King James English kind of prayers. You, you got to make it that way. That's not biblical prayer. Prayer is not telling God what you think he wants to hear so you can get what you want. That's called manipulation. You read Psalms. You find people angry, distraught, anxious, desperate, pouring out their hearts to God. That's what prayer is. It's saying, God, these are my circumstances. This is how they're affecting me. I'm distressed. I'm overwhelmed. I have no answers. You have to do something about this. That's Hannah's prayer. Her request is very simple in verse 11. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She said, remember me, God, see me, see me in my anguish, see me in my distress. Give me a son. It's not for me. I'll give him back to you. I find it more helpful to pray than read books on prayer, but I do read books on prayer. And uh, the book on prayer that I've read that has affected me the most in my lifetime is by Timothy Chester. It's called The Message of Prayer. And the book devotes an entire chapter to chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel. It's where I first really had these passages opened up to me to understand them so that I could preach them. This is Tim's comment on Hannah's prayer. Prayer is an acknowledgement of your weakness 
And prayer is an acknowledgement of our weakness and our need and an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and care. He says, Hannah doesn't stoically accept her situation. He goes on to quote a man called C.B. Samuel. He says this, prayer is not an art. It is a cry. You cannot pretend it nor practice it. You can only express it. (laughs) I like that. No fakers with God. You can't pretend it. You can't say, oh, let's, let's practice prayer and get ready for the big game. No, you can just pray. You look at your situation. You know it's out of order. You know this is not the way God meant things to be. He created women to have babies. So you bring the situation to God. Honestly, sincerely, emotionally. You say, God, this can't be your intention. I look at your word and the way things are. They're wrong. The situation stinks. Don't you remember us down here? Is this how you intended the things to be? You have to take note of this. Look and do something. I don't often pray prayers like that. I have. Not often. I don't hear others pray like that. But this prayer... And many of the prayers of Psalms, and even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's a prayer of desperation. That's a prayer that was never answered. Take this cup from me. These are the prayers that God hears. Now, the story has a happy ending. Hannah has a baby. As promised, she dedicates the baby to the Lord. She brings him to the tabernacle. When he's old enough to live there, she gives him to Eli to train so he can serve the Lord as a temple servant. Doesn't end there. The happiness continues. In chapter 2, we learn that Hannah has had three more sons and two daughters. I'm sure the annual trip to Shiloh for Thanksgiving dinner became a much better experience for Hannah. And so you look at this. It's just a delightful, beautiful story of uh, desperation and provision made. And so they lived happily ever after to the end of their days, right? No, that's the end of The Hobbit. (laughs) This happy ending leads to something bigger. See, the point of the story is that if you pour your heart out to God in desperation for something that he calls good, he may give you what you ask for, but he's leading to something much, much bigger. And that's where this story takes us. So that's the point of chapter two. That's Hannah's second prayer. Point number three in this sermon, Hannah's prophecy, which is recorded in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's read it. Hannah prayed, and she said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There's none beside you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble 
bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills, the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So this woman has her prayer answered and it produces this song. Now... You know, we just, we're just all lazy readers, you know? So we say, oh, it's in the Bible. It must be, you know, I don't know why. How did she end up writing this one? The lady wanted a baby. That's all. She got a baby, and she's, she's talking about the overthrow of all the wicked and the poor being raised and exalted. The song doesn't really fit her experience. See, the other problem we have is most of us in this room, I, I, probably all of us, we, we've been through the Bible a lot. So you know where this book is heading. You know that Samuel grows up to be the kingmaker. He's the one who anoints David, who becomes the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus. You know all that. So you say, oh, well, this song makes total sense. That's where it's going. She didn't know that when she wrote this. She saw something of God. She didn't know far as she was probably just hoping the kid would grow up to be like his dad, a good man. <laughs> up to this point, all we have is a good guy, Elkanah, who's got an unhappy family because his first wife, Hannah, can't get pregnant. She prays to God and answers. There's nothing in chapter 1 that would lead you to, 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 to think of what's coming in chapters 3 and beyond. There's nothing there, nothing there. You'd expect her song to be thanksgiving for hearing prayer or for the joys of family. But instead, her prayer is global in scope and thanks the Lord for delivering his people from all kinds of extreme situations all over the world. The prayer moves in three sections, three movements really. It moves from celebration to anticipation to celebration. I'm sorry, to salvation. Celebration to anticipation to salvation. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. She is celebrating. Her heart exults in the Lord. She is celebrating, magnifying the Lord in her mind. She remembers who God is. He's bigger than I even imagined. He's the one who brings her joy. She composes this song, she says, to give voice to her thoughts and emotions. In verse 1, she says, if I'm strong, it's only because he makes me strong. I knew how weak I was. I knew I was incapable of having children. He made me strong. 
He saves from enemies, second half of verse 1. And because she is free to put down her enemies, it's because of her confidence in His salvation. Verse 2, He is holy, transcendent, above, higher, greater than anything, any other being, anything that she can imagine as we sang today. So in verse 3, we find that He knows everything. He knows every motive. You think you know why people do the things they do? You don't know, unless they tell you. He knows. He knows every action and what motivates it. So she says, stop boasting about your accomplishments. In light of his holiness and his knowledge, all you can do is lay low and sing his praises. So that celebration then moves on to an anticipation of what he's going to do. In verses 4 through 8, we see this great reversal that's going to take place. He's going to break the weapons of oppressors and make the weak strong. Those who become rich at the expense of others will become poor, and the hungry will have plenty to eat. The barren woman will have seven children, the number of abundant completion. But the mother of many is depressed. It's only here in this whole song that there's any reference to Hannah's former situation. She says he holds life and death in his hands. He controls who's poor and who's rich. He has political power. Nobody, nobody has political powers up to him. Nobody, nobody can stand up to him, get their way. He's going to turn it all upside down. And where the powerful and the wealthy oppress the weak and the poor, he's going to flip it all and he's going to allow for human flourishing for all those people who call on his name. The very foundations of the physical earth were established and remained firm because of him. That's what this song anticipates. And so in verses 9 and 10, we see a picture of this salvation. It's the prayer's climax. Everyone who opposes him will be defeated, broken to pieces, and die when he brings them under his judgment. So who's going to do this? Who's going to bring all this about? Now, what is, if you were reading through the Bible for the first time, never read the Bible before, you started on page one, here you are on 272, and you look at the second half of verse 10, and it says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And you say, king. Wow, there hasn't been a king yet in the, in the Bible. Uh, there were some laws about kings, but we never got a king. There was a prediction we might get a king in the future, but here she's saying there's a king coming. And that the Lord will exalt the power of his anointed. Now, if you know any little bit about the Bible, you know that word anointed is uh, the word Messiah. Greek translation is Christus, God's anointed his Christ. This is the first time in the Bible that the title Messiah is used for God's agent of salvation. He is sending an anointed Messiah to right all wrongs, to set things right, to bring about human flourishing. So Hannah, who just had a baby, is prophesying the coming future anointed king who will save his people from their enemies. That's where her prayers take her. This is more than a prayer of thanksgiving. It is a prophetic prayer. 
So how do you get from thanks for the baby to you will come and right every wrong, defeat all evil, as you come and save your people through a future king? How do you get from there to there? What happened to Hannah that she went from having this baby to crying out to God to save the entire earth? And this is the point behind prayers of desperation. And I I can say this is true from experience as much as it is from Scripture. Your point of pain, your point of fear and anxiety, your lack, your poverty, puts you in a position not just to pray for your own need, but it ignites a cry in your heart for the Lord to bring about global salvation. You say, God, my situation's bad. You got to turn it around. Only you can do it. I'm not going anywhere till you act. And he does. And it makes you sensitive to other situations that are bad and need to be turned around. And only God can set, set people free from those situations. And so you get a tender heart for other people that you know as you see the pain and suffering they face may not relate to what you've been through, but you know only the Lord can turn this around. And so your prayers grow in size. They grow in intention. And so you become able to pray as you were never able to pray before because you were poor, you were weak, you were needy, and only the Lord could deliver you. Your prayer transcends your situation when you pray like this. Your hard situation becomes a point of contact between the brokenness of this world and God's heart, not just to deliver you, but to set every right wrong. So Hannah is prophesying not just that the Lord gives the barren woman babies. She's praying for every oppressed person. She's praying that God will send his anointed king to set everything right. So as Tim Chester puts it, quote, the key idea in this song is that Hannah sees what has happened to her against a bigger canvas. I got more than a baby. I got a taste of the great deliverance of my God, which is only a raindrop in the deluge of judgment and saving work that's to come. So Hannah isn't simply an example of how God responds if you pray with enough desperation, giving you whatever you ask for. Hannah is a model of someone who sees her need in light of the entire world's need for God to send his king to save us. Many godly and fertile women have prayed desperately for a baby and didn't get one. Many sick people have prayed desperately for healing and they did not get better. Many poor people and oppressed people have prayed desperately in faith for deliverance and their oppression continues. Were their prayers not heard? Oh, they were heard. They were heart cries for a bigger thing that God is about to do in the entire world. They are cries for our King to return to set this broken, evil world right. What's the point of the Lord's Prayer? It's been my pattern of prayer since I was young. You start out, and it's all about God's glory. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Then we get to my needs. My need of forgiveness, food and clothing. 
protection from the evil one. So our need, it fits into something bigger. And we've got to stop making it so small. We, We have to do... You know, I, I remember many years ago, I was at a conference and these guys were talking very confidently about how we had to have plans for taking our cities for God. And I remember thinking, I, I just like to take children's ministry for God at this point. Um, and some ways I, I feel like it was like overinflated in other ways. It's right. You know, here we sit in this little elementary school. We're not impressive. And yet, we're no different than Hannah. And we're to pray no different than Hannah. Not because we're arrogant, not because it's about us, not because we're going to become some big, massive church that's going to be written up everywhere and have influence all over the world. Not because of that. But because this is how God works. He takes, he takes wives who can't have children who are oppressed by the other wife who can Hannah was a nobody. Couldn't even make a baby. She participates in the coming of the Messiah. She prophesies it. And then the kid makes him king. And that king becomes the pattern, the model for the coming of Jesus Christ, who has begun to turn this entire world upside down. And we in this room are evidence of that. Now, I want to conclude by making an analogy, the analogy that follows should not go beyond my intentions, okay? So don't read more into this than I'm saying. This church, and I know this, because I know so many of you, this church has been born out of the prayers of disappointed people. It's just true. And the Lord has given you a church. And it's a sweet thing. Will you transition beyond the end of chapter one? Say, yay, we're a church. God sent us a pastor, perfect guy from North Carolina. Or will you say, I've just tasted a little answer to something bigger that's coming. And so I'm going to start praying beyond our little church, our needs. They're important. I know some of you here are suffering. I know you are. I know things you're going through. But you say, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to take it where Hannah took it. And I'm going to pray God would turn Montgomery County upside down. And he would deliver the poor and the oppressed. And he would exalt his son, the anointed king. So the call on you all, I think, is not to be simply happy that you finally have a church home where you live, but allow your prayers of disappointment to move you into a prayer for Jesus, God's Messiah, to revive his entire church and to bring his, this entire messed up world to a righteous conclusion. And so my pain informs my prayer which taps me into something far greater than my little need. And that's what I'm going to pray for. That's what I'm going to pray for in desperation. Because that's why God's left us here on this earth, is to see his kingdom come to a glorious degree.
And though it may look small to the world, who cares? Each one of us in this room is a miracle of God. This church is a miracle of God. Why stop here? So I would want to challenge you all to pray. I want to challenge you to pray. I want uh, to, to, to make... To make this church, if it's nothing else, it's a people who pray. And they pray for God's interests. They pray for their own needs, obviously, because the pain hurts. And God wants us to bring the pain to Him with all its emotion. But He wants us to go beyond that. And pray big prayers. There is a song by John Newton that my daughter gave to me during a very hard time in my life Uh, and it has informed my prayers ever since I want to close reciting it to you come my soul thy suit prepare bring your case Jesus loves to answer prayer he himself has bid thee pray will not therefore Will thou therefore say thee nay? Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. We don't bring our sorry little petitions. We bring big stuff. For his grace and his power are such, none can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. Let this be a little church that prays big prayers and doesn't stop. Let us pray for one another in our pain and our need. Let us bring our anguish to God. But let us not stop there. Let that anguish and disappointment translate into prayers for the Lord turning this whole world upside down. And let's die looking for it as long as it takes. That is his calling on Grace Church. That is calling on Solid Rock Church. That is calling on each of our lives.